Chapter 5 I strongly believe, for all babies and a significant number of grown-ups, curiosity is a bigger motivator than money. Elwin Burlikamp For much of his life, the suggestion that Elwin Burlikamp might help revolutionize the world of finance would have sounded like someone's idea of a bad joke. Growing up in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, on the southern bank of the Ohio River, Burlakamp devoted himself to church life, math games, and staying as far away from athletics as possible. Burlakamp's father was a minister in the Evangelical and Reformed Church, now known as the United Church of Christ, one of the largest and most liberal Protestant denominations in the country. Waldo Burlakamp was a gentle and compassionate ecumenical leader who arranged joint services with different Protestant churches and Catholic congregations, gaining a loyal following for his captivating sermons and engaging personality. When the family moved, 450 congregants came to a going-away party. They presented Waldo with a new DeSoto automobile, a sign of their affection and appreciation. As a boy in Fort Thomas, a 10,000-person Cincinnati suburb proud of its abolitionist history, Elwin developed a strong anti-Southern bias and the conviction to pursue his interests, no matter how unpopular. While others in grade school were tackling, throwing, and wrestling on the playground, Burlakamp, serious and slim, was inside a classroom competing in a different way. Burlakamp and a few friends liked to grab pencils and paper to create boards of dots. They'd take turns adding lines, linking dots, and closing squares, playing dots and boxes, a century-old strategy game popular at the time in the Midwest. Some viewed the game as simple child's play, but dots and boxes has surprising complexity and mathematical underpinnings, something Burlakamp came to appreciate later in life. It was an early education in game theory, Burlakamp says. By the time Burlakamp entered Fort Thomas Highlands High School in 1954, he was a wiry, five-foot-ten-inch young man with a good idea of what he enjoyed inside and outside the classroom. In school, it was mostly math and science. Detecting an intelligence that stood out from others, his classmates elected Burlakamp class president. He had curiosity about other subjects, too, though a passion for literature was mostly extinguished by a teacher who insisted on spending half the semester analyzing the novel Gone with the Wind. Sports didn't register anywhere on Burlakamp's list of interests, yet he felt pressure to participate. Nerds were unpopular, and school spirit was greatly emphasized, he says so I went with the flow and decided to join a team. Burlakamp did the math and realized his best odds were in swimming. The swim team didn't have as many people as they needed, so I at least knew I wouldn't be cut. Each night, the boys swam in the nude in a pool at the local YMCA filled with so much chlorine that it took hours to wash it all off, a likely reason the team was so unpopular. It also could have been the coach, who screamed at the boys throughout the practice. Burlakamp, the slowest and weakest swimmer, usually bore the brunt of the abuse. Come on, Burlakamp, the coach bellowed. Get the lead out of your pants. The idiom struck the young man as especially inane since he was naked at the time. Burlakamp was both slow and out of shape. In the few meets where he managed to finish second and capture a medal, only one other competitor had registered for his races. There was a mix-up at a state competition in 1957 and Burlakamp was forced to swim in a relay race against a group of much stronger swimmers. 
Luckily, his teammates handed Burlakamp a huge lead that even he couldn't blow. His team took gold, Burlakamp's one shining athletic moment, teaching him a valuable life lesson. Try to get on a great team, he says. Decades later, the relay team's anchor, Jack Wadsworth Jr., then working as an investment banker, led the initial public offering for an upstart company called Apple Computer. When applying to college, Burlakamp had two requirements, world-class academics and a weak sports program. He had decided that sports was overemphasized in society, and he was no longer going to pretend to care. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology became an obvious choice. When I heard MIT didn't have a football team, I knew it was the school for me, he says. Moving to Cambridge, Massachusetts, Burlakamp dabbled in physics, economics, computers, and chemistry. As a freshman, he was selected to participate in an advanced calculus class taught by John Nash, the game theorist and mathematician who later would be immortalized in Sylvia Nassar's book, A Beautiful Mind. One day, in early 1959, Nash was lecturing at the chalkboard when a student raised his hand to ask a question. Nash turned to him and stared intensely. After several minutes of awkward silence, Nash pointed a finger at the student, berating him for having the temerity to interrupt his lecture. He looked mad, Burlakamp recalls. It was one of the first public hints of Nash's developing mental illness. A few weeks later, Nash resigned from MIT and was admitted to a local hospital for treatment of schizophrenia. Burlakamp had little trouble navigating most of his classes. One year, he received eight A's in a single semester and a 4.9 grade point average on a 5.0 scale, weighed down by a single C in humanities. After winning a prestigious mathematics competition in his senior year to become a Putnam Fellow, Burlakamp began a PhD program at MIT. He focused on electrical engineering, studying with Peter Elias and Claude Shannon. Elias and Shannon were pioneers of information theory, the groundbreaking approach to quantifying, encoding, and transmitting telephone signals, text, pictures, and other kinds of information that would provide the underpinnings for computers, the internet, and all digital media. One afternoon, Shannon passed Burlakamp in the school's hallway. The thin, five-foot-ten-inch professor was a notorious introvert, so Burlakamp had to think fast to try to grab his attention. I'm going to the library to check out one of your papers, Burlakamp blurted. Shannon grimaced. Don't do that. You learn more if you try to work it out yourself, Shannon insisted. He pulled Burlakamp aside, as if to share a secret. It's not a good time to invest in the market, Shannon said. Shannon hadn't told many others, but he had begun building mathematical formulas to try to beat the stock market. At that point, his formulas were flashing signs of caution. Burlakamp tried hard not to laugh. He had virtually nothing in the bank, so Shannon's warnings meant nothing to him. Besides, Burlakamp held a dismissive view of finance. My impression was that it was a game in which rich people play around with each other, and it doesn't do the world much good, Burlakamp says. It still is my impression. The fact that someone Burlakamp admired was trading stocks came as something of a shock to the young man. That was really news, he says. During the summers of 1960 and 1962, Burlakamp spent time as a research assistant at the prestigious Bell Laboratories Research Center in Murray Hill, New Jersey. There, Burlakamp worked for John Larry Kelly, Jr., 
a handsome physicist with a thick Texan drawl and a range of interests and habits, many of which Burlicamp didn't initially appreciate. Kelly, who had spent four years as a pilot in the U.S. Navy during World War II, mounted a huge rifle on his living room wall, smoked six packs of cigarettes a day, and was passionate about professional and college football, even introducing a novel betting system to predict game scores. When Kelly became frustrated with his work, he used language that his young assistant was unaccustomed to hearing. Motherfucking integrals, Kelly cried out one day, startling Burlicamp. Despite the sometimes crude exterior, Kelly was the most brilliant scientist Burlicamp had ever met. To my shock, all his math was right, Burlicamp says. I used to think of Southerners as dumb. Kelly changed my view. Several years earlier, Kelly had published a paper describing a system he'd developed to analyze information transmitted over networks, a strategy that also worked for making various kinds of wagers. To illustrate his ideas, Kelly developed a method he had devised to profit at the racetrack. Kelly's system proposed ideal bets if one somehow obtained enough information to disregard the posted odds and could instead rely on a more accurate set of probabilities, the true odds for each race. Kelly's formula had grown out of Shannon's earlier work on information theory. Spending evenings at Kelly's home playing bridge and discussing science, math, and more, Burlicamp came to see the similarities between betting on horses and investing in stocks, given that chance plays a huge role in both. They also discussed how accurate information and properly sized wagers can provide one with an advantage. Kelly's work underscored the importance of sizing one's bets, a lesson Burlicamp would draw on later in life. I had zero interest in finance, but here was Kelly doing all this portfolio theory, Burlicamp says. Slowly, Burlicamp began to appreciate the intellectual challenges and financial rewards stemming from finance. In 1964, Burlicamp found himself in a deep rut. A young woman he had been dating broke up with him, and he was wallowing in self-pity. When the University of California, Berkeley, asked if he'd fly to the West Coast to interview for a teaching job, Burlicamp jumped at the opportunity. It was snowing and freezing, and I needed a break, he says. Burlicamp eventually accepted the job and completed his doctoral thesis at Berkeley, becoming an assistant professor in electrical engineering. One day, while juggling in his apartment, Burlicamp heard a rapping from the floor below. The noise he was making was disturbing the two women who lived below him. Burlicamp's apology led to an introduction to a student from England named Jennifer Wilson, whom he married in 1966. Burlicamp became an expert in decoding digital information, helping NASA decipher images coming back from satellites exploring Mars, Venus, and other parts of the solar system. Employing principles he had developed studying puzzles and games, like dots and boxes, Burlicamp co-founded a branch of mathematics called Combinatorial Game Theory and wrote a book called Algebraic Coding Theory a classic in the field. He also constructed an algorithm, appropriately named Burlicamp's algorithm, for the factorization of polynomials over finite fields, which became a crucial tool in cryptography and other fields. Burlicamp wasn't nearly as capable at navigating campus politics, as he soon found himself caught in a raging turf war between departments in Berkeley's College of Letters and Science. 
I got criticized for having lunch with the wrong people, he recalls. Burlikamp came to realize that much of human interaction is colored by shades of gray that he sometimes found difficult to discern. Mathematics, by contrast, elicits objective, unbiased answers, results he found calming and reassuring. Truth in life is broad and nuanced. You can make all kinds of arguments, such as whether a president or person is fantastic or awful, he says. That's why I love math problems. They have clear answers. By the late 1960s, Berlekamp's work on coding theory had gained the attention of the Institute for Defense Analyses, the nonprofit corporation that also employed Simons. Berlekamp began doing classified work for the IDA in 1968, spending years on various projects in Berkeley and in Princeton. During that time, a colleague introduced him to Simons, but the two didn't hit it off, despite sharing a love of math and time spent at MIT, Berkeley, and the IDA. His mathematics were different from mine, Burlikamp says, and Jim had an insatiable urge to do finance and make money. He likes action. He was always playing poker and fussing around with the markets. I've always viewed poker as a digression, of no more interest to me than baseball or football, which is to say hardly any. Burlikamp returned to Berkeley as a professor of electrical engineering and mathematics around the same time Simons built his Stony Brook department. In 1973, when Burlikamp became part owner of a cryptography company, he thought Simons might want a stake. Simons couldn't afford the $4 million investment, but he served on the company's board of directors. Burlikamp noticed Simons was a good listener at board meetings and made sensible recommendations, though he often interrupted the gatherings to take smoking breaks. In 1985, Eastman Kodak acquired a company Burlikamp had founded that worked with block codes for space and satellite communications. The resulting windfall of several million dollars brought new challenges to his marriage. My wife wanted a bigger house. I wanted to travel, he says. Determined to protect his newfound wealth, Burlikamp bought top-rated municipal bonds, but a rumor in the spring of 1986 that Congress might remove the tax-free status of those investments crushed their value. Congress never acted, but the experience taught Burlikamp that investors sometimes act irrationally. He considered investing his money in stocks, but a former college roommate warned him that corporate executives lie to shareholders, rendering most shares dicey prospects. You should look at commodities, the college friend said. Burlikamp knew commodities trading entailed complicated futures contracts, so he called Simons the one person he knew who had some understanding of the area, asking for advice. Simon seemed thrilled to receive the phone call. I have just the opportunity for you, he said. Simons invited Burlikamp to fly to Huntington Beach a couple times a month to learn to trade for himself and see if his expertise in statistical information theory might be useful to Axcom. You really should go down and talk to Jim Axe, Simons told Burlikamp. He could benefit from someone like you. Earlier in life, Burlikamp had been contemptuous of the trading business. Now he was intrigued by the idea of a new challenge. He flew to the Huntington Beach office in 1988 with eager anticipation. Before Burlikamp could settle into his desk, however, Axe approached with a look of annoyance on his face. If Simons wants you to work for us, he'll have to pay for you, Axe told Burlikamp by way of introduction. I know I'm not. Burlikamp was taken aback. 
Axe wanted him out of the office right away. Ehrlichamp had flown all the way from Berkeley, and he didn't want to turn around and go home so quickly. He decided to stick around a bit, but to stay out of Axe's way. Much as George Costanza returned to work after getting fired in a classic episode of the television show Seinfeld. Soon, Burlicamp learned that Axe and Simons were in the midst of a bitter, long-running feud centered on who should pay Axcom's mounting expenses, a battle Simons had neglected to mention to Burlicamp. For all the brain power the team was employing and the help they were receiving from Carmona and others, Axcom's model usually focused on two simple and commonplace trading strategies. Sometimes it chased prices or bought various commodities that were moving higher or lower on the assumption that the trend would continue. Other times, the model wagered that a price move was petering out and would reverse, a reversion strategy. Axe had access to more extensive pricing information than his rivals, thanks to Strauss's growing collection of clean, historic data. Since price movements often resembled those of the past, that data enabled the firm to more accurately determine when trends were likely to continue and when they were ebbing. Computing power had improved and become cheaper, allowing the team to produce more sophisticated trading models, including Carmona's kernel methods, the early machine learning strategy that had made Simons so uncomfortable. With those advantages, Axcom averaged annual gains of about 20%, topping most rivals. Yet Simons kept asking why returns weren't better. Adding to the tension, their rivals were multiplying. A veteran analyst at Merrill Lynch named John Murphy had published a book called Technical Analysis of the Financial Markets, explaining in simple terms how to track and trade price trends. Buying investments as they became more expensive and selling them as they fell in value was at odds with leading academic theory, which recommended buying when prices cheapened and taking money off the table when prices richened. Warren Buffett and other big-name investors embraced that value style of investing. Still, some aggressive traders, including hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones, had adopted trend-following strategies similar to those Simons' team relied on. Simons needed new approaches to stay a step ahead of the pack. Burlicamp began sharing his suggestions. He told Axe that Axcom's trading models didn't seem to size trades properly. They should buy and sell larger amounts when their model suggested a better chance of making money, Burlicamp argued, precepts he had learned from Kelly. We ought to be loading up here, Burlicamp said one day. Axe didn't seem impressed. We'll get to that, Axe replied half-heartedly. Burlicamp discovered other problems with Axcom's operations. The firm traded gold, silver, copper, and other metals, as well as hogs and other meats and grains and other commodities. But their buy and sell orders were still placed through emailed instructions to their broker, Greg Olson, at the open and close of trading each day. And Axcom often held on to investments for weeks or even months at a time. That's a dangerous approach, Burlicamp argued because markets can be volatile. Infrequent trading precluded the firm from jumping on new opportunities as they arose and led to losses during extended downturns. Burlicam urged Axe to look for smaller, short-term opportunities, get in and get out. Axe brushed him off again, this time citing the cost of doing rapid trading. Besides, Strauss's intraday price data was riddled with inaccuracies. He hadn't fully cleaned it yet. 
so they couldn't create a reliable model for short-term trades. Axe consented to giving Burlakamp a few research assignments, but each time Burlakamp visited, he realized Axe had mostly ignored his recommendations, calling them mere tinkering, or they had been poorly implemented. It hadn't been Axe's idea for Burlakamp to pop in to share his opinions, and he wasn't going to be bothered with the theories and suggestions of a professor just beginning to understand the trading game. Axe didn't seem to need much help. The previous year, 1987, Axcom had scored double-digit returns, sidestepping a crash in October that sent the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeting 22.6% in a day. Ignoring the trading model, Axe had presciently purchased Eurodollar futures, which soared as stocks plummeted, helping Axcom offset other losses. Word was beginning to get out that Simons had math wizards attempting a new strategy, and a few individuals showed interest in investing in Axcom, including Edward Thorpe, the pioneering quantitative trader. Thorpe made an appointment to meet Simons in New York, but canceled it after doing some due diligence. It wasn't Simons' strategies that most concerned him. I learned Simons was a chain smoker, and going to their offices was like walking into a giant ashtray, said Thorpe, who had moved to Newport Beach, California. Clients had other issues with Axcom. Some didn't have faith in Simons' venture capital adventures and didn't want to fund with those kinds of investments. To keep those investors in the fold, Simons shut down Limroy in March 1988, selling off the venture investments to launch, together with Axe, an offshore hedge fund focused solely on trading. They named their hedge fund Medallion, in honor of the prestigious math awards each had received. Within six months, Medallion was suffering. Some of the losses could be traced to a shift in Axe's focus. After moving to California, Axe had rented a quiet home with a boat slip in nearby Huntington Harbor, five miles down Pacific Coast Highway from the office. Soon, Axe was searching for a more isolated spot, eventually renting a seaside estate in Malibu. Axe never truly enjoyed the company of others, especially his co-workers. Now he became even more detached from those around him, managing nearly a dozen employees in the Huntington office remotely. He went into the office just once a week. Sometimes, Burlakamp flew in for a meeting, only to discover Axe hadn't budged from Malibu. After Axe married an accountant named Francis, he became even less inclined to travel to meet with the team. Sometimes he called to make requests entirely unrelated to their algorithms and predictive models. Okay, so what kind of cereal do you want me to bring? An employee was overheard saying to Axe on the phone one day. As Axe became more disengaged, Axcom's results deteriorated. The research wasn't as aggressive, Carmona says. When the boss isn't present, the dynamics aren't the same. Burlakamp puts it this way. Axe was a competent mathematician, but an incompetent research manager. Looking for still more seclusion, Axe purchased a spectacular home on a cliff in Pacific Palisades, atop a hill overlooking the Santa Monica Mountains. Carmona drove there once a week to bring Axe food, books, and other necessities. They'd engage in grueling paddle tennis matches as Carmona patiently listened to Axe's latest conspiracy theories. Colleagues came to see Axe as something of a hermit, theorizing that he kept choosing homes near the coast so he wouldn't have to deal with anyone on at least one side of his house. 
after a staffer agreed to come install the salt lick in Axe's yard so he could attract deer and other animals, Axe spent long stretches staring at the scene from a window. Axe relied on his instincts for a portion of the portfolio, edging away from trading based on the sophisticated models he and Strauss had developed, much as Baum had drifted toward traditional trading years earlier, and Simons was initially uncomfortable with Carmona's kernels. It seemed quantitative investing didn't come naturally, even to math professors. Axe figured out that West Coast copies of the New York Times were printed in the city of Torrance, about 40 miles away, and arranged for the next day's paper to be delivered to his home just after midnight. Axe proceeded to make trades in overnight international markets based on comments from government officials and others he had read in the paper, hoping to get a step on competitors. He also installed enormous television screens throughout his home to monitor the news and communicate with colleagues through a video connection he had established. He became infatuated with technology, Berlecamp says. Axe drove a white Jaguar, played a lot of racquetball, and spent time on his mountain bike in the nearby hills, at one point falling headfirst, prompting emergency brain surgery. The firm's results remained strong during the first half of 1988, but then losses hit. Axe was confident a rebound was imminent, but Simons grew concerned. Soon, he and Axe were squabbling once again. Axe wanted to upgrade the firm's computers so the trading system could run faster, but there was no way he was going to pay for the improvements. Simons also resisted writing any checks. As tensions grew, Axe complained that Simons wasn't meeting his share of the responsibilities. Let Simons pay for everything. Axe told a colleague when a bill arrived. By the spring of 1989, Axe had developed a healthy respect for Berlecamp, a fellow world-class mathematician who shared his competitive streak. Axe still wasn't implementing Berlecamp's trading suggestions, mind you, but he realized he was in a bind, and there were few others around to listen to his complaints about Simons. I'm doing all the trading, and he's just dealing with the investors, Axe told Berlecamp, who tried to be sympathetic. One day, when Berlecamp visited, Axe looked somber. Their fund had been losing money for months and was now down nearly 30% from the middle of the previous year, a staggering blow. Axcom's soybean futures holdings had collapsed in value when an attempt by an Italian conglomerate to corner the market came undone, sending prices plummeting. Mounting competition from other trend followers was also having an effect. Axe showed Berlecamp a letter he'd received from Simons' accountant, Mark Silber, ordering Axcom to halt all trading that was based on the firm's struggling, longer-term predictive signals until Axe and his team produced a plan to revamp and improve its trading operations. Simons would only allow Axcom to do short-term trading, a style that represented just 10% of its activity. Axe was furious. He was in charge of trading, Simons' job was handling their investors. How can he stop me from trading? Axe said, his voice rising. He can't close me down. Axe remained certain the fund's performance would rebound. Trending strategies required an investor to live through tough periods, when trends ebb or they can't be identified, because new ones are often around the bend. Simons' trading halt had violated their partnership agreement. Axe was going to sue Simons. He's been bossing me around too long, Axe bellowed. Berlecamp tried to calm Axe down, 
A lawsuit wasn't the brightest idea, Berlecamp said. It would be costly, take forever, and ultimately might not succeed. Besides, Simons had a good argument. Technically, Axcom was trading for a general partnership controlled by Simons, so he had the legal right to determine the firm's future. Axe didn't realize it, but Simons was dealing with his own pressures. Old friends and investors were calling, worried about the steep losses. Some couldn't take the pain and withdrew their cash. When Simons dealt with Strauss and others at the office, he was curt. They all could see the losses mounting, and the mood within the firm soured. Simons decided Axe's strategies were much too simple. He told Axe the only way he could prevent clients from bailing and keep the firm alive was to curtail their long-term trades, which were causing all their losses, while reassuring investors that they develop new and improved tactics. Axe didn't want to hear it. He set out for Huntington Beach to elicit the support of his colleagues. He had little luck. Strauss didn't want to pick sides, he told Axe and was uncomfortable being in the middle of an escalating battle jeopardizing both his firm and his career. Axe became enraged. How can you be so disloyal? He screamed at Strauss. Strauss didn't know how to respond. I sat there feeling stupid, he says. Simons had spent more than a decade backing various traders and attempting a new approach to investing. He hadn't made much headway. Baum had flamed out. Henry Laufer wasn't around much and now his fund with Axe and Strauss was down to $20 million amid mounting losses. Simons was spending more time on his various side businesses than he was on trading. His heart didn't seem to be in the investment business. Strauss and his colleagues became convinced Simons might shutter the firm. It wasn't clear Jim had any faith, he says, and it wasn't clear if we would survive or fold. Returning home at night, Strauss and his wife spent hours preparing for the worst, calculating their spending habits and tallying their accumulated wealth as their two children played nearby in their den. They discussed where they might move if Simons closed Axcom and gave up trading. Back in the office, the bickering between Simons and Axe continued. Strauss listened as Axe screamed over the phone at Simons and Silber. It all became too much. I'm going on vacation. Strauss finally told Axe, you guys work this out. By the summer of 1989, Axe felt boxed in. He was using second-tier lawyers who worked on contingency fees, while Simons employed top-flight New York attorneys. It was becoming obvious that Simons would outlast him in a legal fight. One day, Burlicamp presented Axe with an idea. Why don't I buy your stake in the firm? Privately, Burlicamp was beginning to think he might be able to turn Axcom around. He was only spending a day or two each month at the firm, and he wondered how it might fare if he focused his full attention on improving the trading system. No one had figured out how to build a computer system to score huge gains. Maybe Burlicamp could be the one to help do it. I was hooked on the intellectual exercise, Burlicamp says. Axe decided he didn't have a better option so he agreed to sell most of his Axcom shares to Burlicamp. After the deal was completed, Burlicamp owned 40% of the firm, leaving Strauss and Simons with 25% each, while Axe retained 10%. Axe holed up in his home for months, speaking to his wife and few others. Eventually, he began a slow and remarkable transformation. Axe and his wife moved to San Diego, 
where he finally learned to relax just a bit, writing poetry and enrolling in screenwriting classes. He even completed a science fiction thriller called Bots. Axe went online and read an academic paper about quantum mechanics written by Simon Koshin and decided to reconnect with his former colleague, who still taught at Princeton. Soon, they were collaborating on academic papers about mathematical aspects of quantum mechanics. There remained an emptiness in Axe's life. He tracked down the whereabouts of his younger son, Brian. One day, he picked up the phone to call Brian in his dormitory at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. They hadn't spoken in more than 15 years. Hi, he began tentatively. This is James Axe. They spoke for hours that evening, the first of a series of lengthy and intense conversations between Axe and his two sons. Axe shared his regrets about how he had abandoned his boys and acknowledged the damage his anger had caused. The boys forgave Axe, eager to have their father back in their lives. Over time, Axe and his sons forged close relationships. In 2003, after Axe became a grandfather, he and Barbara, his ex-wife, reunited and established their own unlikely friendship. Three years later, at the age of 69, Axe died of colon cancer. On his tombstone, his sons engraved a formula representing the Axe-Koshin theorem. <laughs>